ever wish you had a reset button? What would a reset look like in your life? We've all experienced disruptive changes, profound loss, abnormalities, been on the brink of burnout. We want to offer you hope, encouragement, guidance. God promises life and life everlasting. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad you're here today. Uh, this morning we uh, are continuing our new series that we're calling Reset. And, and isn't it a great idea to think about what it looks like just to hit the reset button on our relationship with God, ourselves, with other people, with this world in which we live, and, and to try to strive to be God's people at this time and place. It's going to be a great series. We're going to talk about a lot of uh, different things. This morning, I want to begin with Job chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. In the book of Job, there's all these conversations that are happening, and there's a friend of Job who asks Job, he says, Job, can you fathom the depths of God or discover the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. We only have such a small ability to know God on our own, of ourselves. God is higher, deeper, longer, wider than the highest, deepest, longest, widest things that we can even comprehend. Like, just imagine yourself standing on earth and what's the, you know, what's the deepest thing you can imagine, the highest, that's what this verse is about. But it fails to even begin to describe how vastly wonderful God is. Our sincere but meager attempts to define God, describe God, fall laughably short. Interesting conversation. And yet, what we talked about last week with this series is that God has given us two inexhaustibly profound ways to know him. You know, a third way is through creation, but there are two very special and specific ways that he's given to know him. And one of them is, the first, is that we've been given the very words of God, the written word, the holy scriptures. In the Bible, God gives us very special and specific and profound knowledge about himself and also about ourselves. Uh, knowledge that would be unattainable or inaccessible otherwise. The scriptural text is made living and active by God's Holy Spirit. The Spirit inspired every word of this book. But when we read it, the Spirit breathes into us. And, and we can put total faith in what the written word reveals about God. This is a profound way to know God through his word. Now, the other inexhaustibly profound way that God has given us to know himself is by his son, Jesus Christ. That God sent his one and only son into the world to be a kind of like living word. This is the written word. But Jesus embodies all who God is and all that God's wisdom asks of us. He came in the flesh. And so we talked about a couple of verses, a lot in John, but we hit them again last week because we can't think too much about these. The word became flesh. And dwelt among us. We've observed the glory, 
the glory of the one and only Son who is sent from the Father, full of grace of truth. And no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed Jesus, or he has revealed the Father. He has exegeted God for all of us. And so we have this profound, inexhaustible knowledge of God reflected on every page of Scripture. We have this profound, inexhaustible knowledge of God that is also reflected in the very face of Jesus Christ. If we would open this word, if we would look to the face of Jesus, this is the whole key to us resetting our relationship with God, is that we've got to come back to God's word, the written word and the living word, Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.10, how do we put on a new self? You want to hit the reset button. You're like, how do we do that practically? Well, you're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. The pages of the written word, the face of the living Jesus Christ, that's like the whole foundation. That's like the knowledge base to our faith. We're coming back to that written word. We repent and we're coming back to Jesus. And in Jesus, we're not only beholding the majesty of the creator, but we're finding renewal by coming back to him. So the invitation of week one was repent and, and turn back to God that your sins may be wiped out and that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Our faith is anchored right there. Now, this morning, I want to turn our attention to a verse in Romans. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It reads this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's knowledge. So that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Last week we talked about faith. Faith is that in which we put our absolute trust. Faith always has to have an object. What or who is the object of our faith? Well, the object of our faith is we are putting our faith in the written record of Scripture, of, of God's Word. That everything that this is showing us, we're going to trust this absolutely in every way. But we're also more specifically trusting in the living Word, Jesus Christ, who came and exegeted the Father and, and fulfilled the Scriptures. And so we, we are putting our faith in Jesus Christ, ultimately. And so then this verse is talking about worship. Worship is how our faith responds. Okay, I trust this, so then what does that look like? It's a life of worship. And this morning is about resetting our worship and what worship is and, and how it functions in our lives and, and how it refreshes and renews us. Now the big idea of Romans 12, and the reason I picked this verse is that, oh boy, you know, it, if we could somehow get our eyes like full of the mercies of God, we'd spontaneously lay our very lives down. That's Romans 12.1. Uh, we would lay our lives down as living sacrifices on the altar of God. If we could get our hearts 
full. If we could get our minds full, saturated with the mercies of God, that knowledge would transform us. It would renew us. It would reset us. It would reset our worship. Our whole lives, the trajectory would change if we got our eyes, our heart, our mind full of the mercies of God. There is uh, somebody that was joking about modern music, and this person was talking about churches singing a lot of 7-Eleven songs. And I was like, okay, I know this is, where is this going? But the the 7-Eleven songs are where you have like seven words, but you repeat them 11 times. You know, so like for you are good, 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 but you do it 11 times. For you are good, good. But the person's point was that, yes, God is good, but what's behind that idea of his goodness? Like unpack it a little bit. There's a little plus symbol next to the word good. You expand that out, there should be a whole tree. There should be all of this, right, that is behind that one little word good. Why do so few Christians sacrificially live for God? You read Romans 12.1. You offer yourself as a living sacrifice on an altar before God. Why is that the philosophy for so few Christians. Why do so many Christians act ambivalent about what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God? I think the short answer to that is we don't often have a very deep perspective on the mercies of God. Mercy. What mercy? Grace. What grace? God's goodness. What goodness? The faith crisis that we're in these days is we don't know how to unpack words like mercy or grace or the goodness of God. We don't know the mercies, and we don't know them because we barely crack open the written word of God, much less spend time gazing into the face of the living word of God, Jesus Christ. And and, and therefore, weak knowledge of the word, personal knowledge of Christ, weak knowledge, weak faith. Weak knowledge, weak worship. Weak knowledge, and there's not much sacrifice to our lives. You can take Romans 12, and sometimes I'll do this with a verse, is you can take Romans 12 and kind of invert it a little bit. And what I mean is, you can rewrite it. So, like, one of the ways you can kind of rewrite it is, therefore, brothers and sisters, if you don't know the mercies of God... Why would you ever present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God? If you don't know the mercies of God, how would you ever truly worship or or respond properly to God? If you don't know the mercies of God, if your eye's not full and if you don't have that perspective, how could you ever help but be conformed to the pattern of this age? How could you ever be transformed? How could your mind ever be renewed? Why would you ever concern yourself with what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God if you don't have that foundation of a knowledge of his mercy that's rooted in the the word of God, but also in the person of Jesus Christ? Every time Paul writes a letter in the New Testament, he employs the same method or style. He'll spend 50% of his time enumerating the mercies of God. You see it in book after book. You look at Ephesians, and it's like the first four chapters are about the mercies of God, and the last couple of chapters are the so what, the commands, the imperatives. You look at the book of Romans, 
And we're in Romans 12, verse 1, but for 12 chapters, 11 chapters, he's been enumerating the salvation history of God, all the mercies of God from the very beginning of creation all the way through Abraham and Sarah and all the way right up to the present time. And then he says, in view of all of that, this then is how you should live your life. He details the mercies before he dares utter a single commandment. And the reason is, why would you ever do anything sacrificial for God if you didn't first understand what sacrificial things God's done for you by his mercy? We're all familiar with Moses, the Ten Commandments, right? And the books of the law, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, we sludge through those books sometimes. But do you realize before God gave Moses a single syllable of the law, what did God give Moses and the people of Israel? He gave them a full-eyed view of his loving grace, his mercy, his covenant faithfulness, his love. By the time God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, he's already given them a million reasons to want to listen and obey. Exodus 20 is where you find the Ten Commandments. There's 19 chapters before you get to Exodus 20 and read these Ten Commandments. There's the whole book of Genesis, the story of Joseph. All of that is a backdrop to anything that God would require of us. And that's how Scripture is laid out, that that God always saturates us with his loving mercy before he ever demands anything of us. So allow me to call your attention to Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. This is where we find the Ten Commandments. But I want you to look that even in chapter 20, it starts this way. Then God spoke all these words. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. In view of God's mercies, this is a summary of all of Genesis and Exodus up to this point. In view of all that I've been doing to deliver you and save you and and establish you as my people, right? Maybe you ought to not have any other gods besides me, right? Why would you want to? After all the mercy, why would you want to have any other god? So Romans 12, 1 and 2. In view of the mercies of God, God brought you out of Egypt. He delivered you out of the land of slavery, out of the hand of Pharaoh, Okay, you're to have no other gods before me. Throughout the Old Testament, man, that history of God's mercy is just replayed and replayed and rehearsed and rehearsed over and over. Deuteronomy says, parents, rehearse this history of mercy with your children and then teach them to obey, right? Offer your bodies, in view of this mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to me. Don't be conformed to Egypt. Uh, to worldly cultures, be transformed, renew your mind, consider what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You know, divorced from the context of God's grace and mercy, God's commandments kind of ring hollow and ineffectual. You know, when you go to the soda machine, some of you don't go to the soda machine anymore, but some of us still do, okay? But, uh, you know, you go to the soda machine, And there's your favorite drink. You fill up your glass. And then you go and take a drink. When it lacks carbonation and it's so flat, 
and doesn't even have a, it just, it's lost its fizzle. It's like lukewarm. You're just like, right? It looks like it's going to be refreshing, but there's nothing refreshing about it. And that's what, that's what religion, that's what obedience, that's what all these commands are without the mercies and grace of God. If you don't lay the context and, and create the sizzle, the fizzle, right, the carbonation of God's mercy, like if you don't bring that in first before you add, like these commands kind of fall short. And Christianity becomes kind of tasteless in people's mouth. Uh, divorced from the context of God's grace and mercy, the commands, all these things, what do they really do for us? So here's my question for you this morning. How in focus are the mercies of God in your life? How in focus are the mercies of God? How well do you know the history of God's mercy and his covenant faithfulness through the Holy Scriptures from the very beginning right up to the present time? How in focus is that? How deeply have you gazed into the face of our most merciful Lord, Jesus Christ? I have a confession to make. I spent most of my Christian life focusing on the what, the commandments of Christ. Like that's the only thing that I would really pay attention to. Growing up, my whole life, like I wanted to obey. I didn't want my parents on my back. Whatever the reasons, I would read the Ten Commandments just as an example. And I would completely skip over the merciful context of Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 and 2. And all of Exodus and Genesis and everything that's preceded. And I would just start at verse 3 and I'd make a checklist. Okay, no other gods. Love God. Got it. Check. Don't worship any idols. Check. Don't use his name in vain. Check. Don't skip church ever. Sabbath. Check. Uh, listen to mom and pops. And don't back talk them. Check. Don't kill your brother or sister. Your brothers or sister. Check. Don't have dirty thoughts about girls. You know, that's how you translate adultery. Check, all right? Do not steal. Well, I tried to check that one, but, you know, it's just, you're a young man. But anyway, do not steal. Uh, check. I'll try, you know, do not lie. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Got it. And, and boy, if you mess up, there will be curses. Uh, have you ever noticed in Scripture that a lot of people mess up? They fall short. Have you noticed in your own life? Because I noticed in mine that I'd have these lists and I would fall short and I'd get demoralized and I would lose steam. And it was kind of like uncarbonated soda, my life, you know. It wasn't until I was nearly 18 years old and I'm sitting in a Bible class and I realized there was a guy by the name of Dr. Kirka that was teaching. And, and he was on fire for God and, and the way he would teach the scriptures, he, he had a full eye view of the mercy of God. And, and I realized... I was missing that context as I approached Scripture. I was missing the merciful context of God. I was reading Scripture all wrong. I was banking all the demands of God while ignoring the vast mercies of God. That makes for a very joyless and sour Christian life, by the way. Uh, I, had to, I, I had to go all the way back to Genesis and reread every story through an entirely different set of lenses. There is so much grace and mercy in the story of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the people of Israel, the judges, I mean, the prophets. I had to learn to read scripture with God's mercy in view. I didn't have that set of glasses on, and so everything was out of focus. If you don't keep God's mercy in focus, if you don't read scriptures or consider God's expectations in your life through that mercy, you're never going to love God in a truly meaningful, much less sacrificial manner. And so nowadays, when I read scripture, it's a much different experience. Nowadays, when I read scripture, I realize there's not a single page that isn't stained in some way with the blood of Jesus Christ. And God isn't asking me to pay a price for my disobedience. On the cross, God paid the price for my disobedience once and for all. He took my shame and guilt. And he planned to take my shame and guilt from the very beginning. That's what Leviticus is about, right? He hung in my place, taking my nails, taking my penalty, taking the curses that should have just as well been upon me. He took them onto himself. And on that cross, not only did he pay the price for my disobedience, but he paved the way for my obedience. In love, he won me over. Amen? He laid his life down on the altar of the cross. He allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. And because he did that for me, how much more should I be inspired to reciprocate and to lay my life down for Jesus? He obeyed the Father to the extent of death. He became a dying sacrifice for me. Why shouldn't I consider it pure joy to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God? Why shouldn't I consider it a joy to be a living sacrifice? You know the difference between a dying and a living sacrifice? Jesus was a dying sacrifice. He had to die on that cross, on the altar, so to speak, to please the Father once and for all, for all of us, to take the curse for all of us. He was a sacrifice who died. We're more like Isaac. Abraham and Isaac realized that their relationship with God, that the penalty for their sin would be death, and that Isaac should, by all accounts, lay his life down, and he should be a dying sacrifice on that altar. But God did not accept his death. God intervened. He provided a lamb, ultimately he provides a lamb, Jesus Christ, for all of us. But he only let Isaac go to the extent of being a living sacrifice. He didn't make him die for his sins. And that's how it is with us. God doesn't make us die. He dies in our place. And because he was a dying sacrifice, and we only have to be living sacrifice, you see, that kind of sets a different context to everything God asked of us. Jesus was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. God just wants us to be living sacrifices. The mercy of God, I just want to say, it's like the badly missing perspective, the badly missing context for our obedience. You ignore the mercy of God, and, and you're going to forever live a marginal, lukewarm, vomit-worthy life at best, okay? God's just going to, you're like, God will spit you out. The mercy of God is what creates our fire. It's what carbonates our life and makes the Christian life so vivacious and, and beautiful and attractive and powerful, quite frankly. If the church has grown cold and 
Many have. It's because it's lost sight of the mercies of God. If your life, if you've grown cold in your desire to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, and your desire to be a living sacrifice, if, if it's grown cold, it's because you've lost sight of the mercies of God. So what's the key to revival and revitalization? Maybe get the full perspective of what are the mercies of God. When you read scripture, you will notice something if you start to look for it. It's everywhere. You will notice how continually, it's a spiritual discipline, how continually God's people rehearse the mercies of God before holding out the expectations of God. It happens over and again. It's on every page. It's everywhere. It's snuck in in every paragraph just about. John 3, 16 and 17, God's talking to Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus, God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Mercy, right? Mercy. He loved you. He became a dying sacrifice. He laid down his life for you. That's the mercy context, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 2, no greater words, uh, more condensed, powerfully portraying the gospel than Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you like previously walked as you walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work in the disobedience. You know, you were dead. You were as good as dead. And, And all of us too. Previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. No one's exempt here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. We were by nature children of wrath, as were other people as well. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You're saved by grace. And he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age God could show off and display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul, he he has no shortage of superlatives and yet no amount of superlatives even come close to approximating the exceedingly abundantly unimaginable graces of God. I mean... You are saved by grace through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It was God's gift. You're not saved by works so that you can boast. No, we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. You're not saved. You know, this Christian life is not our works earning God's grace. This Christian life is God's grace earning our works. We don't obey to get the mercy. We get the mercy and therefore we respond and worship and obey. We get the whole life upside down. And so the calibration that we most need right now, and I thought it would be worth the whole sermon just to talk about it is, that get the mercies in view and then your life will be in its proper posture. You get the mercy in view and then you can be that living sacrifice and respond properly to God. Remember Job's friend? 
where we started? Can you fathom the depths of God? You know, how do you discover the limits of God? You know, God's higher than the highest heavens. What can you do? He's deeper than Sheol. What can you know? The measure of God is longer than the earth and, and wider than the sea, right? Paul, in Ephesians 3, prays this powerful prayer. He says, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And I pray that God may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, what is the width, what is the height, what is the depth of God's love. We think Sheol is the deepest thing we can imagine, but God's love's deeper. The highest thing we can imagine, right? The widest, the longest. Paul's praying that we would comprehend what is the height and width and length and depth of God. And to, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think according to the power that's working us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. Wow. Do you have God's mercy in view? Do you have his mercy in view? So many things that I would love to share and continue talking about. I want to mention Psalm 107 to you. And I want to see if I can read this here quickly. Uh, This isn't shallow. This isn't superficial. This is an example of what it looks like to let yourself be saturated by the mercies of God so that you can worship properly. Psalm 107, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful and love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them from the power of the foe and has gathered them from the lands, from the east and west, the north and the south. You know, some wandered in the desolate wilderness, finding no way to a city where they could live. They were hungry and thirsty Their spirits failed within them. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he rescued them from their distress. He led them by the right path to go to a city where they could live. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity, for he has satisfied the thirsty and filled them with good things. Now there were others. They sat in darkness and gloom. They were prisoners in cruel chains because they rebelled against God's command and despised the counsel of the Most High. He broke their spirits with hard labor. They stumbled and there was nobody to help them in their slavery. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and gloom, broke their chains apart, and let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. He has broken down the bronze gates, and he's cut through the iron bars. Now there were fools, fools who suffered affliction. They suffered affliction because of their rebellious ways and their iniquities. They loathed all food, and they came near the gates of death. 
But then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent his word and healed them. He rescued them from the pit. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and announce his works with shouts of joy. You know, others went out to sea in ships, conducting trade on the vast waters. They saw the Lord's works, his wondrous works in the deep. He spoke and raised a stormy wind that stirred up the waves of the sea, rising up to the sky, sinking down to the depths, their courage melting in their anguish. They reeled and staggered like a drunk, drunkard, and all their skill was useless. But then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they rejoiced, because the waves grew quiet, and he guided them to the harbor that they longed for. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love, for his wondrous works for all humanity. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of elders. He turns rivers into desert, springs into thirsty ground, the fruitful land into a salty wasteland because of the wickedness of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into a pool, dry lands into springs. He causes the hungry to settle there and establish a city where they can live. They sow fields and plant vineyards and yield a fruitful harvest. He blesses them. They multiply greatly. He doesn't let their livestock decrease. When they are diminished and are humbled by cruel oppressors and sorrow, he pours contempt on nobles and makes them wander in a trackless wasteland. But he lifts the needy out of their suffering. And he makes the families multiply their flocks. The upright see this and they rejoice and all injustice shuts its mouth and is silenced. Let whoever is wise pay attention to these things and consider the Lord's acts of faithfulness. In view of God's mercy, you look at the salvation history of God, that'll bring you to your knees. But even in your own life, how has the Lord demonstrated his goodness to you? When did you find yourself in a desolate wilderness? When did you find yourself sitting in darkness and gloom, a prisoner, a slave of your own sin, trapped in darkness? When did you live the life of a fool, suffering unneeded affliction because of your waywardness? When were you like a sea, a ship tossed around at sea, right? Storms of life ravaging hell over you. When has your life you felt like you were in a desert, dry desert, and you were thirsty. But then God met you, and he satisfied you. In your life, there's mercies too. And those mercies ought to bring us to a place of worship. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you have not abandoned us, that you have showed us your faithful love throughout all generations and even to us personally. We pray that we would worship you, that we would respond to you properly in view of all these mercies. Thank you that Jesus died for us, that we might live as a sacrifice unto you. Lead us in this, guide us in this, inspire us to glorify you, to discern what is the good, pleasing will of God. And may we do it with full hearts. 
uh, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.